I like to take over, don't I? <laughs> really? No, I don't. <laughs> I really They're don't. Better and better and better. Mm -hmm. That's pretty exciting about that student. Rachel, it? yeah. You know, that's when awesome. I when I see people achieving success, it really thrills me. Me too. And I'm very glad that that she's doing so well. It seems like we've got a lot of very brilliant students in the South Academy. We do. And yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, t today we have a very big challenge in front of us because uh, I have been feeling for some time that we need to take on one of the most important, basic, fundamental concepts of chemistry. I think that if all of us, those of us that are going to be scientists and those that know better, <laughs> we all need to understand how this world glues together. And chemistry is really a, a study of how atoms combine together and under what rules and conditions. Knowing the rules of how elements combine is gaining the power to do so many things we talk about. Almost any project is based, based on that. And so with that thought in mind, I, I wonder uh, if you'd like to say a few words about electrons. A few words. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Mm -hmm. You want to tell so, me what to say? <laughs> it just so happens I brought a electron model. And if you'd be kind enough to pull on the fuse, I mean the string, you're doing like fine. Acme. You're doing fine. Keep pulling, keep pulling. And there it is. That is the electron on the string. Now, as you know, electrons are not static like she's trying to make it look. That's better. <laughs> Only you've got to, there we go. Would you like to see how electrons really work? Yes. It turns out that this is not string. This no, it's is stretchy cord. Yeah. It's really stretchy. Yeah, yeah. So what I want you to do is I want you to just swing this electron around like it's going around a big orbital. And then when you get it orbiting, then I'm going to give you a challenge. Okay, here we go. Is everybody ready? It's about hitting you. <laughs> that's what I here you we got go. on my head? Yeah. Well that's good. That's good. That's good. Now you can't see me, can you? You can see at that velocity there's a force pushing the ball out. It's called centrifugal force. Centrifugal force. Centrifugal force. And it's stretching the string. Uh -huh. But now I'd yeah. like you to do it faster. And I want everyone to notice and see if, when it goes faster, if the string stretches out further because there's a higher energy. And by the way, to get the higher energy, you're going to put more into it. Can you trust me? More oh, oh, yes. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, now let's make the energy bigger. That's why. That's. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so afraid of did I mention to you that high energy is dangerous? It would have really hurt if I hit you. What yes, it, it did. I mean, mentally, I ran several scenarios. <laughs> and in most of them, I got hurt. I want to try now. No. Do or do not. All right. I want to do something. I want okay. to give you an analogy to understand the foundation of chemical reactions. My goal 
today is that we leave here saying, oh, I get it. Okay. And there's really some big I gets it in here. Many of you are going to be taking chemistry or are right now. Uh, have you all heard that we have a brand new chemistry course that just went live, what, last week? Awesome. And it is amazing. Uh, I, I feel like it's a major jump forward in the quality of our chemistry instruction. If you've taken chemistry, you may want to take it again. <laughs> it's that good. It really is. But chemistry is based on some foundation concepts. And remember, we didn't invent chemistry. We reverse engineered it. We learned it from nature. Nature had chemistry all figured out. We just went in and studied it to figure out how it works. And once we figured out how it works, it gave us the power to do many, many things, like make fuels, like create food, like create products, etc., like beat up people that we have issues with. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty intense ball. Next time, I string. will swing the electron. Okay. Well, you, can, was... you can dodge it. Okay. <laughs> All right. I want you to imagine a world like our Earth that has oceans and that has mountains. Now that shouldn't be too hard because we all live on a world just like that, don't we? This mm -hmm. is a world where we have mountains and we have valleys and we have oceans. Did you realize that the oceans are lower, they're lower than all the valleys on the earth? Now that's not entirely true. There's two places I've been where there was a valley that was below sea level. Uh, the valley around the Dead Sea, I mean, you're driving down the road, you can see way down there, you can see the Dead Sea, and you see a little sign, you go zooming by, and the sign says, sea level. Mm. That means that's the level of the ocean. If the ocean had a ditch running from that point to the Mediterranean Sea, that whole big valley would fill up with water because it's below sea level. There's just no water there. But other than there and, uh, say, Death Valley, there are few places where the ocean isn't the lowest place on Earth, surface place. Okay, you can go down the bottom of the ocean. So go with me for a minute. I want you to imagine a reservoir way up in the top of a mountain. Now think about it. The sun heats up water in the ocean. Some of the water evaporates and goes up into the air, gets blown around by the winds. Eventually, and, and by the way, what, what makes the winds? The sun. The sun and the ra rising water. The sun's what powers the winds. But the winds carry the moist air up over the land. And for example, this isn't the only case, but for example, as the winds blow across the mountains, the mountains are in the way, so the winds push the air up over the mountain. As they go up, the air gets cold, can't hold the water, so you get rain. Or if it's really cold, you get snow, right? So the water falls on the mountains. The water that was in the ocean falls on the mountains. And what does it do? It goes back to the ocean. First, goes down the hillside, finds a little stream, the little stream goes down to a bigger stream, to a river, to a giant river, to the ocean. So it's like as soon as the sun disturbs the water and kicks it out of the ocean, 
It's like the water scene. I'm getting back to that ocean. I am getting back to the ocean. And it spends the rest of its trip trying to find a way back to the ocean. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, on the scene comes people. I was going to say man, but you know, women, all kinds of people come on the scene. And sometimes people will build a dam across the path of a stream coming down the mountain. We dam it up. And you say, well, dam is not a good word to say. Right. And, and I grew up knowing that. Do you know that my father was the son of a water master? He would control the water coming out of a dam. Mm -hmm. The water master. And uh, the, the reservoir where he controlled the water or the dam was called U.B. stood for Uinta Basin. U.B. Dam. And my, my dad just says, you know, when I lived there, we were way out there all by ourselves. It was so quiet. And he says, it was so quiet that in their family, they started using that particular reservoir as an example of being really quiet. He says his dad would come up to him and say, you be damn quiet. <laughs> Which means be as quiet as the dam, right? <laughs> well, anyway... So people build dams, and the water gets caught there, and it builds up. And then we like to run it through things like turbines or irrigation ditches and get it to do things that we want. But the water is trapped there for a while. But eventually, the reservoir gets full, and it releases the water, or in some cases, the dam breaks, and then the water comes rushing down. So temporarily, the water is up there. But just think about it. Water that is stored in a reservoir up in a mountain has a lot of potential energy. And that potential energy can run through a turbine and generate a lot of power. So when the sun evaporates water, it's putting energy into the ocean. And the water floats up on the mountain. The sun did the work lifting that water up there. And when the water is up high and gravity's pulling it down, it's stored energy. A big reservoir of water up in a mountain is stored energy. Can we, can we agree with that? Mm -hmm. And then as it comes down through a generator, it generates power. How's that relate to chemistry? It doesn't. <laughs> Other than water is chemical. Okay? But it actually turns out that it's a lot like Peugeot was trying to show us with her very dangerous demonstration. <laughs> Next time she does this, mm -hmm. Well, should we show them? Let's do it again. No, it no, again. it's more than that. That's more wait, than that. <laughs> wait. Next time, I will wear my safety glasses. Okay. <laughs> I love that smile. <laughs> so, so let's let's talk about it. This is an electron, or it's actually a rubber ball, but in our discussion, it represents an electron. Electrons go around atoms, like planets go around the sun. And you know, back in the day, long before I was born, we used to think the electrons were just like little planets going around the sun. Nowadays, we realize there's more to it than that. And that's where we get into quantum physics. And that's the kind of stuff that kind of creeps everybody out. And I use the word creepy with great authority because it was Einstein that says 
creepy action at a distance. Stuff in quantum physics, quantum means having to do with very, 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 very small particles like individual atoms. Stuff down in that world behaves bizarre. It doesn't make sense to us real people based out of atoms that have quantum physics. <laughs> and Einstein said that if we really, really, really understood everything that was happening, it would make a lot more sense. And I believe that. Mm -hmm. I think when, when we talk about quantum physics, we talk about the quantum theory. And we call it a theory because it just seems like there's more we're going to learn about it. But one thing about it, while we're still reverse engineering quantum theory, we are learning more and more with which we are able to do a lot more. A lot of the things we enjoy with computers and lasers and other things are because we've studied quantum behavior. And so we use it to create things we want. But I'm not going to try to explain all of the reasons why electrons going around the center of an atom, which is the proton, why they're not nice, predictable orbits, like the Earth going around the sun. In fact, scientists say the way that you can uh, show the path of an electron around an atom is by drawing a cloud of probability. It's probably here more than it's there. And it's very unpredictable where it is. And all I want to say about that is it's really different. Okay, <laughs> We will know more. And as you get into chemistry, you're going to learn a lot more about the detail of that. But I'm going to go back to the Bohr model. And it's interesting. The scientist, Mr. Bohr, had a lot to do with the beginning of quantum physics. But still, we have a drawing of an atom that Mr. Bohr came up with. And I'd like to show you one. This is a hydrogen atom. And let's just take a peek at it. Here's the hydrogen atom. And it's not there. It's called number one. Number There it is, right there. Can you see it? That H is the symbol, and that little dot is the atom. So there's a hydrogen atom. And remember, a hydrogen atom is one proton, which is one little chunk in the center, like the sun, only it's not hot in this case, and one electron zooming around it. And we, we draw it like that. And that little dot in this symbolizes the electron. And the H symbolizes the nucleus in the middle. And we're going to, this isn't actually a, a board diagram, but we're going to use this to show how to predict how things go together in chemistry and in nature. And I'm going into some, some deep water a little bit here, but you can, you can catch this if you'll make the effort. And it will really give you a good foundation for things that you're going to do later on in science, I hope. So here's a hydrogen atom. It's got one nucleus, which in case of hydrogen is just one proton and one electron. If it had two little particles in the middle, two protons and two electrons, and by the way, the protons and electrons are always the same, in a normal atom. If it did, then it wouldn't be hydrogen. It'd be helium. And if it had three, it wouldn't be helium. It'd be lithium. And you go on through the whole periodic table. If it had eight, it would be oxygen. 
So the thing that changes elements from one element to the other is how many protons and electrons are in each atom. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's our little hydrogen atom. Now, in nature, hydrogen doesn't like to be alone. Hydrogen is a gas, but it's a, it's a friendly gas. <laughs> and so, in nature, we show it like this. There it is. Two hydrogens together. And if you look on the left, you see an H, which is one proton, and another H is the other one. And look, they both have their electrons, and the electrons are shared between them. And the fact that the second hydrogen wants to hang on to the other guy's electron is the reason they stay together. They're coupled. They're, they're a couple of hydrogens. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's what we call a hydrogen family or a hydrogen molecule, two of them together. And it's interesting. The thing that holds them together is they both want two electrons. Now, this is why we were doing the spinning ball. Why do they both want two electrons? And the answer is because in the path that the electrons go, if there are two of them together, they are able to have an orbit that has less energy. So they have less energy, so they settle down. It's like the water up in the mountain has a lot of potential energy because it's way up there, but then as it falls down in the ocean, you can't run ocean water through a turbine because it's already clear down at sea level, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that. By having both of them together, they're able to have a lower energy. And so it's like if you put big balls on top of all the mountains and then you had an earthquake and shook the earth, all the balls would roll down to the lowest spot. And that's where they'd stop, right? Everything likes to come down to the lowest state. So these electrons stick together because that is the lowest energy state. It turns out that in all of the atoms, which have all different numbers of electrons, some have over 100 electrons, but in all the atoms, there are a few electrons on the outside shells, or the outlined orbits of the electrons, that are called the valence electrons, or the ones that are involved in chemical reactions. So if you're trying to figure out if hydrogen's going to react with oxygen, you don't need to worry about all of the oxygen electrodes. You only have to worry about the, excuse me, all the oxygen electrons. You only have to worry about the ones in the outer orbit, or the valence ones. And let's, let's take a look at that. Here is a case of oxygen. Oxygen, as you can see in the top left, has one, two, three, four, five, six electrons. Now here's something we're going to have to memorize. When an atom has two electrons, it's very happy and stable. They pull each other together in a way that it goes to a lower energy state, and so it's very happy. If it has just one electron, that electron has to be at a higher energy, and it's looking for somebody to combine with because it would like to have a lower energy level, like being in the ocean where it can rest and not worry about falling off a mountain, right? Okay. Oxygen, on the other hand, has more than two. It has one, two, three, four, five, six electrons. 
and those six electrons in the outer shell would like to be eight. It would like to have eight valence electrons because eight is a geometry that allows electrons to have a lower energy and be stable. Now, it seems like I'm trying to confuse you, so I'm going to back up and clean it all up. Okay, so hydrogen has just one electron. Helium has two. Other than that, they're identical. Other than one has one, one has two electrons, one has one proton. Helium has two protons. Other than that, they're identical. But hydrogen will burn. It'll explode if you mix it with air and light it. Boom. Helium, on the other hand, still a light gas, but if you light it, it won't burn. Why? Because it has two electrons, and they've settled down to the ocean valley level, and so it's not a flammable gas. It's an inert gas. So two electrons in the outer, outer uh, orbits are stable. And that only applies, by the way, to helium. Helium is the only thing that only has two right there. But in the outer shell, the valence electrons, there are quite a few things with two electrons that are the reaction electrons. On the other hand, above two, there's another magic number with eight. When there's eight electrons, valence or reaction electrons, it's also stable. And I, I'd like to go down to number 10 if we can. We jump down to R10. Here we go. This is part of the periodic table. And this is a whole bunch of elements. The first one there is hydrogen. Then over on the far right is helium. One electron, two electrons. One proton, one, two protons. Lithium is three. Beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, and neon. Now, something interesting is going on. This is telling you how many valence electrons each of these have. All of them in that first column, the 1A column, have one reaction electron. So they're very reactive. All of them in 8A over on the far right have full shells or, or full orbitals. So they're very stable. So helium will not burn. Neon is also an inert gas. It won't burn. Argon is an inert gas. Do you know that when we're welding some kind of metals, and they're getting so hot that in air, the metals will just burn up? Like if we're melting even stainless, when it's that hot, it will oxidize and ruin the stainless. So what we do is we use a torch with a flame that has helium or neon or argon, usually helium or argon, sprayed in around to push the air away because they won't react. They won't tarnish the metal. And if it's helium, we call it a heliart. And that's kind of a neat technology to be able to weld things that would oxidize otherwise. Well, everything in that last column has the right number of electrons to be stable. Everything in the next column over is one short. And it wants that last electron to be able to have eight in the outer shell or outer orbit. It wants it so bad that it's very reactive. And the first one in that seven column is fluorine. Chlorine. Those are very reactive, poisonous 
be careful with those. Now, if you go over to the other side, hydrogen's got one more. It'd like give it away or share it with somebody, like two hydrogens that will stick together. I'd like to go back now to um, four. In four, you can see we're going to introduce two friends together. And this is where the magic of all this goes. If you didn't quite keep up with all the details of what I just said, then maybe you're not in college yet, okay, <laughs> or haven't taken chemistry. But I still wanted to lay that foundation. And for you young guys who just fell asleep, wake up, we're going again, <laughs> all right? So look, there's that hydrogen ore there with his electron. He's very proud of it. He's got his electron, but he's not happy because that electron is really spinning at a high rate. And he'd like to get it in a stable, easy state. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. So he's looking for another hydrogen or somebody to hook up with. And then there's oxygen. Oxygen has two electrons, but I mean eight electrons, but two of them are in that inner orbital. So they're out of the picture. They're not reaction electrons. But six are reaction electrons, and they know the magic number's eight. So we've either got to get rid of all six, or we've got to get two more. If we could get two more electrons, we would be very happy. Well, where is oxygen going to get some electrons? From hydrogen? You say, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't that be stealing? No. No, if it was stealing, it would be what chemists call an ionic bond. <laughs> ionic bond is where some big ugly thing with a lot of electronegativity comes and steals electrons. But we're not talking about it. We're talking about covalent bonds. Covalent means sharing. Oxygen doesn't want to steal people's electrons. It just wants to share them. <laughs> okay? Are you with me? So now this hydrogen comes and meets oxygen, and oxygen says, you have an electron, let's share it. And so they hook up. They become joined together like magnets because their electrons can go to a lower orbital by being together. So if you move the hydrogen over close to the oxygen, now the oxygen has seven. But seven is not the magic number, eight is. So that is not going to be stable. And in fact, what we get is we end up with a thing called a hydroxide ion. And chemists know a lot about that. So the only way to really make oxygen happy is to get it two hydrogens. If it had two hydrogens and if oxygen was sharing them all, then there would be that beautiful magic octet, eight in the outer shell of electrons, and so all of a sudden, we would have a happy oxygen. Let's take a look at the next figure. Oh, there it is. When oxygen gets two hydrogens and it shares both their electrons, oxygen's finally got eight, the magic number in the outer shell, and so water becomes very stable. And to get water to be stable, oxygen will react with any hydrogen it finds. That's why hydrogen cars burn hydrogen, which means it lets it hook up with oxygen. And when it does hook up, you get energy off. And where does the energy of burning hydrogen come from? It comes from these electrons that were going crazy. But when you get all eight of them together, the electrons can slow down 
And so the energy comes off as light and heat. And that's what powers the car. Now, I'd like to show you the next slide where we kind of show a little better how we do this. You notice this is the same figure to a chemist as the other one was. Because when they're both sharing the electron, we call that a double bond. Excuse me, that's not a double bond. We're going to get to it, though. We, we draw it by drawing one line, which shows that the hydrogen thinks he's got the electron, the oxygen thinks he has. Let's go back to the slide before. In this slide, you see there's two electrons between the hydrogen and the oxygen, and they are sharing electrons. Now let's go back forward again. Here, those two electrons are being shown as that special bond, okay? Now, I want to jump to the next slide where you can see how it turns out. This is a water molecule. And that big blue looking atom is oxygen. Now, how, how did it get blue? Well, because when we made this drawing, we painted it blue. That's not really, it doesn't really look blue. No. Or how would we know? We've never been small enough to really see the color. But we do see the shape. And the hydrogens aren't on both sides. They're stuck up at the side like that, like ears. And why? Why is it shaped like that? By the way, did you know the fact that in water, the hydrogens hook on like that, up at, like mouse ears, is very, very important because it makes water a polar molecule meaning that it's more negative on this side and more positive on that side, so it can hook up in chains. And that hooking up in chains is, is what gives us a lot of the properties of water that are very important to us, okay? Let's look at the next slide. This is why it goes like that. Can you see the hydrogen is happy because it has a magic number of two. Remember, like helium, Two in the outer uh, orbit is a stable number. And the oxygen's happy because he has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And eight's the other stable number. So that's why it pulls that way. Now, more of the why has to do with the geometry of the, the cloud, and I'm not going to get into that, even though it would be tempting, wouldn't it? Okay, let's, let's move on. And in this slide, all of a sudden, we're talking about chlorine. If you remember from that table, chlorine had seven in the outer shell. It's out hunting for that one more. I need one more electron, I'll be happy. And there he is. Because chlorine is not satisfied, chlorines hook up with chlorines. All right, there they are. And these are two ways of showing it. Remember. If we draw a line, it means they both provide an electron which connects them together. And <clears throat> in the next one, we see the same thing, only this time it's nitrogen. Nitrogen is what makes up a lot of what we call air, <sighs> breathable stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Nitrogen has how many electrons? One, two, three, four, five in the valence shell. And look, in this case, they're going to share three sets of electrons. And they're going to do that so they can get a stable number, in this case, 
two, four, six, eight, ten, and ten is another stable number. And look how we we have a triple bond here. Some things, quite often involving carbon, for example, will have double bonds. In other words, we'll have two shared electrons between uh, elements involving carbon. And here's one, a triple bond with nitrogen. So in air, nitrogen doesn't flow around by itself. It always goes around in twos, like companions, floating around through the air. Oxygen does that, floats around as two. Hydrogen does that until they find something better. When hydrogen finds oxygen, they both join the oxygen, only it's interesting because they don't. One of them joins the oxygen, and then they go find another one somewhere else, and it's, you know, I think there are partnership issues. <laughs> but studying how this all takes place and how it happens is so much of what we do in chemistry, and that's pretty nice, isn't it? Well, I would like to now show you what we can do with this. By knowing how many hydrogens it takes to react with one oxygen atom, we can figure out how much hydrogen and how much air to put in a hydrogen engine to make it run the best. We can learn how to synthesize all kinds of different compounds in organic chemistry laboratory. We learn how to make little mixtures that we put together with the most incredible smells, some of which are very pleasant, some are less pleasant, okay? So it wouldn't be right to do chemistry without doing some chemistry, would it? So I actually have brought some chemistry. Uh, in this little flask, I have vinegar. Vinegar. In this little container, I have baking soda, sodium bicarbonate. If you put these two together, they react, and the result is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide has evolved from this reaction. But the question is, how much should I put together? How much of the powder, how much of the liquid? Okay? And so I'm going to do an experiment to see if I can figure that out. First of all, I'm going to take quite a bit of vinegar. Yep, that's quite a bit of vinegar. And then I'm going to take just a tiny amount of soda, of sodium bicarbonate. What's going to happen? Will it react? Well, watch. Can you see it? It's reacting. Can you hear it? Mm-hmm. I can't. All right. Oh, it quit. Why did the reaction quit? It ran out of soda. There's still plenty of unused vinegar. When the vinegar reacts, it gets used up, but ran out of soda. So if I put some more soda in, it'll start again. Look at that. There it goes. So I have too much vinegar and not enough soda. I don't have a correct mixture. Now I'd like to try to go the other way. I'm going to take some, mm -hmm, some time, stir that. <laughs> I'm going to put quite a bit of soda in here. Oh, there's plenty of soda, isn't it? And now I'm going to put just a drop of vinegar. And let's see if I can get a reaction. 
so you can see it better. Are you ready? React. Look at it go. Can you see it bubbling in there? It's quitting. But I can still see tons of soda. So here the reaction quit because there wasn't enough soda, but there's plenty of vinegar. This one, the reaction quit because there's plenty of soda. If I put more vinegar in, I'll bet we can get it going again. Oh yeah, look at that cook. So this reaction is being bound by a shortage of vinegar. This one's being bound by a shortage of sodium bicarbonate. With chemistry, and because we understand these valence electrons, we can actually calculate exactly how much of one reactant we have to put with another one to get a perfect result. And in the case of a hydrogen car, if I have too much hydrogen and not enough air, then a lot of the hydrogen can go right through the engine, never burn, never do any work, and just go out the exhaust. On the other hand, if I put too much air and not enough hydrogen, then I'll get just a little bit of power, and most of the oxygen will go right out the exhaust, not used. And so we need to know the right amount of chemicals to mix together to do things. We need to do what chemists call balancing reactions. And once we know how to balance reactions, then we can make a lot of neat things happen. We can do a lot of amazing things like put rockets into space and hydrogen cars on the road and have science fairs. Speaking of which, Mr. Joshua, where are we in terms of the science fair deadline, which you didn't say much about? Oh. Today <laughs> is the science fair deadline. And it's till when? Till midnight. Take your time. <laughs> Take your time. Get them in. We have a lot of wonderful, wonderful entries. And I was so inspired by some of the entries. We've been adding some new prizes. I will tell you, one of the new prizes for the science fair participants is a Celestron telescope. It's kind of neat. And you heard about the new Navy Award that's going to be awarded to one of you, winners of our science fair. I've been looking at the entries coming in. We have some real fun ones coming in. And the fun thing is people are getting it. They're getting the scientific method, which empowers them to be able to learn things. And remember, we, we didn't invent quantum physics. We didn't invent chemistry. We reversed engineered it. Nature invented it. We just figured out how it worked. And the more we understand it, the better we have it figured out, the more power we have to do things with it. Tomorrow is the first day of preparation for next year's science fair. And I can promise you next year's science fair is going to be bigger and better and bigger and better. We recently acquired a brand new campus for the Institute of Science and Technology. Next year, we are planning to have the finalists in the science fair invited to come and attend a, a local on-site event. Honey. And uh, so 
there's more motivation than ever to get to work on your science fair projects. We will be posting uh, a lot of these experiments for you as soon as we can. Uh, I, I'm very pleased to say we're overwhelmed by the number of entries. <sighs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> but that's good. And so it's time to start right now on what you're going to invention air for next year. And remember, a science fair project is where you use the scientific method. The scientific method is a way of coming up with a hypothesis, figuring out how you can do an experiment to see if your hypothesis is correct or not, and being able to advance your knowledge toward achieving a specific goal. Inventioneering, which was kind of invented here at IST, is the way of using the scientific learning to be able to create an outcome. And it combines the skills of inventing and engineering. Engineering involves math and science and formulas to be able to optimize. Very often, you could have a really good invention, a really good idea, and you try to do it, and it works, but it doesn't work good enough to be commercial. But with the engineering, you can optimize it and make it commercial. So that's what we do. Study hard. Thank you. <laughs>